Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Today on Sport Faith Life, we talk with Diane Wies Bjornstahl, Professor of Sports Medicine Psychology at the University of Minnesota. Diane grew up loving to play sports in an era where there were actually very few opportunities for young girls. But Diane was persistent, and as Title IX began opening doors, Diane continued her fascination with physical activity and sports, turning it into a career. Today, her research focuses on youth sport, women in sport, and our topic for today, faith and coping with sport injury. Let's get started. Oh, we're so excited to have Diane with us today. Diane, so great to have you. Thanks so much for being here. I um, wonder if you can tell us a little bit about sport in your life. Well, I was uh, um, had the great good fortune of being about the right age to be in high school when Title IX hit. And that was quite fortuitous for me because I grew up as a young girl, sort of against the norm at the time, uh, loving sports. Uh, my family was not at all athletic. My father, mother... They'd, uh, my father would listen to the twins once in a while on the radio. That influenced me, I expect. And he'd listen to the Golden Gophers football games because he grew up in southwestern Minnesota. And that was what you did on WCCO radio. You listened to the Gophers football and the twins baseball. But other than that, they were not participants at all. But for some reason, I, from the youngest of ages, I just enjoyed physical activity and sports and played with the neighbor kids and there were no opportunities for girls in my era in terms of organized sports, really until I got almost into high school. So in some ways, I think that was good because I, I grew up sort of very naturalistically um, copycatting. I remember watching, for example, I would copycat Oscar Robertson, who played for the Milwaukee Bucks. And of course, in the Lou Alcindor Oscar Robertson days, I was Oscar Robertson. And so I mimicked a lot of his uh, mannerisms in the basketball court with that hoop pounded into the roof as they were in those days of the garage. Um, And so there were very few opportunities to see female athletes, but I did model after some of the male athletes that I saw. So I played in the backyard, played in the neighborhood, um, rode bikes, climbed trees, played football in the yard. Uh, rode my bike. We were in the country about 10 miles. I'd ride my bike into town for the few opportunities for summer park and rec softball or something that we might have an occasional few days of lessons. Um, But really, in 1972, I was a freshman in high school. And all of a sudden, we had girls sports teams. And so I again, as I said, I had the great blessing and great good fortune of being in high school at the right time, at least to have those opportunities to play. And in some ways, that was a good thing because I wasn't burned out. I see so many of the kids now are tired of it by then. I was couldn't have enough, and I played through college as well as I'll mention briefly. But um, so in high in high school we had a track team. I played, I ran track through the shot put. I played on the volleyball team, played on the basketball team, and went off to college, Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and played uh, all three sports there. Actually, softball instead of track. And then uh, by junior year, I had to give up one with all, all else going on. So I gave up basketball, but stayed with volleyball and softball through college. So 
it just, um, I still loved it. I, I wasn't burned out by that point. I, and I feel great sadness when I hear kids these days kind of burned out and not wanting to play anymore, even by high school age. And I just did not, I had the opposite experience probably because I didn't start at a very young age. So that's the uh, team sports were kind of where I gravitated. Well, I feel a little bit of sadness for you, Diane, that you chose basketball uh, as the one to give up among all those others. What, I mean, there, there must've been a, um, was that, was that a mistake? I mean, you, you chose basketball to give up. That's- <laughs> I'm, I'm taking it. That's your sport, Chad. Is that where this is going? That is. That's exactly where I'm going. But anyway, we'll move on. Uh, thanks for sharing that. How, how, how cool that, that background. Um, tell us a little bit about faith in your life. I also had the great good fortune of being raised in a family that um, in my uh, Scandinavian uh, tradition, we were Lutherans. And I was raised in the Lutheran church. I still belong to the Lutheran church. I've always found a Lutheran church to attend wherever I went for graduate school or work. Um, I've always stayed with that faith tradition, which was so important to my family. And so I, I remember distinctly just it was embedded in the culture of our family and how I was raised. My father would read the daily from the Lutheran um, you know, prayer for the day and sort of message for the day. We would, he would read that at breakfast. We would all gather. That was just part of our routine. Um, my mother, very active in the church and volunteering and really set that, uh, really modeled what it meant to be a woman of God and to participate in fully in not only the belief system of the church, but the actions that, that lie behind that. And so I learned that message from her and her parents, again, in this strong tradition of, um, again, a, a Scandinavian Lutheran sort of tradition. So it's just always been a part of my life and I've tried to convey a similar grounding from my own kids uh, because it um, it just underlies everything we do, everything I do in my life is that spiritual foundation that was laid by my parents. You know, both of those stories, Diane, have really a nostalgic feel to them in that they they harken back to times when at least, at least our generation, um, we think of things as simpler, um, more normative in some ways, right? Uh, that you, you appealed to a denomination and, and many students today would not think about it that way. And many of our students that we work with, and then just the idea that, uh, there was some rhythm and balance in your life and you were climbing trees as well as shooting hoops and doing a lot of it really on your own in the driveway, a little bit different than uh, a lot of the experiences now of kids that get started really early and they have matching t-shirts and uniforms right away. Uh, they're traveling around and doing all sorts of different things. They'll tell different stories and I suppose they will have different nostalgia uh, when that moment comes. But it is quite something and it's quite instructive, I think, for us to think about the, the different backgrounds that we may have had. Yours particularly with Title IX and uh, sort of that explosion of opportunities for uh, girls and young women in sports right around that time is really kind of, uh, it's a lost uh, understanding really at this point. Uh, so I wonder too, I mean, you're spending your time playing sports and, and uh, enjoying life. Uh, what, maybe in your child life or in your adult life, uh, do you do that is beyond uh, this or what's interesting about you that that maybe people wouldn't know by looking at your resume? I uh, 
I'm extremely outdoorsy. Uh, so my love for competitive sports, you know, lasted through probably into my early 30s when the body could no longer handle the uh, kinds of sports I was playing. I did play volleyball and even softball into it, competitively into my 30s. But, you know, I, I always underlying that even since college really uh, got into outdoor activities. So I think the pe thing that people maybe don't know about me is I'm very outdoorsy. I love to this day, uh, I have sort of the before kids and after kids era, but before kids, a lot of backpacking, um, canoe, you know, canoe trekking, a little bit of mountain climbing, a little rock climbing, those, all of those, any kind of outdoor activities. And then, you know, even now, canoe, kayak, bike, anything I can do to be outdoors, not in a competitive way, snowshoeing in the winter, cross-country skiing, sometimes downhill skiing. I still do enjoy all of that. That's where I find my my peace and my solitude and my restoration is in the outdoors. So maybe something people don't know about me is I was like a canoe guide for many years in the Boundary Waters, still of all the places in the world that I love the most. It's the North Woods of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. I I've, um, just there's a great um, peacefulness and solitude and the cry of a loon can't be matched. So I just I think people don't know that I'm that outdoorsy and always have been really. Wow, that's that's fascinating. And it, it uh, also speaks to your location, meaning you worked your way through all the seasons there uh, and found a way to be outside in all of them. And that that refreshing aspect of nature. Um, and, and being able to be active in nature, it just fuels you. And it, I think Chad and I kind of share that probably not to this. I have no expertise in canoeing, so, uh, maybe Chad does. I don't know. <laughs> I, so I don't. you did mention though, that you reached a point in your life where your body wasn't allowing you to do what you maybe wanted to do. And you've kind of gotten into this idea of, of injury and, uh, maybe, uh, even aspects of aging that might remove you from some of the things that you might want to do in sport or some sort of activity. So how, how did you gravitate to, toward that as an academic? <clears throat> and what sort of work have you done in that particular field that maybe um, gives sort of that underlying focus to, to all of us? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, Brian, in that my interest my academic interest in this topic stemmed from personal experience. I remember specifically, I would say um, it's really college athletics where I first started having the occasional more serious injury. I hadn't played enough to that point, which probably was a good thing, as I said, because I didn't have the number of injuries that so many young people do now, even before high school or certainly by high school. So mine came in college and the support, the sports medicine support systems were non-existent largely, especially for girls and the women in those days. We just weren't treated the same. We weren't taken seriously as athletes, even though we were on college varsity teams, same as the, the men. Um, we just really were not treated in the same way in terms of access to sports medicine. And so to your point or to your question, in reflecting on that in terms of how I was um, treated or not treated by, we didn't have athletic trainers, for example. So you went to the just routine sport, the routine uh, campus medical clinic who couldn't have cared less about a sports injury to a young female athlete. So we had no athletic trainers. I think the men did, but we didn't. So there was no resources there. And I, I just thought something could be better. I 
think um, I had some great coaches. I don't mean to disparage them, but things could have been better in terms of how a coach works with an injured athlete, whether you're taken seriously, um, whether you get the proper care. And so I just really started thinking about um, where the concerns were and and how that affected an athlete psychologically, reflecting on my own experiences. And then more importantly, how can we make it better? What could we do in terms of not only research, but ultimately the applications for coaching education, athletic trainer education, in paying attention to the psychosocial experience of the athletes and, and understanding their fears, their concerns, their worries, um, the meaning of the injury to them. And just incorporating that in a in a thoughtful, um, uh, caring way in our interactions with athletes. So you're exactly right. That's where my interest started. And I started in graduate school. I wrote my very first paper on this topic when I was invited to by one of my PhD classmates to speak at a Northwest. I went to the University of Oregon for my doctorate. He was in charge of the Northwest Athletic Trainers Association meeting that year and so invited me I had started studying sports psychology, even though I started in biomechanics. I actually double majored in both in my PhD. And uh, he said, well, maybe you could come out and talk to us about sports psychology for the athletic trainers. And that's really how it started. That was in the mid 1980s. So that my very first paper was just after that, I published the paper from my talk. And um, that was really the impetus to get me started on the academic pursuit related to the psychology of sports injuries. So you've connected biomechanics, social psychology, physical education, you know, sports studies, uh, athletic training, all these, these different areas. What, what a cool, what a cool sort of uh, connection between many of the subfields of kinesiology. I'm curious, especially as you've reflected on some of your own experiences in athletics, whether, um, whether you're seeing, prominent differences or whether you're, you're even looking for differences between uh, males and females in terms of how, uh, coping mechanisms or whether that has, has played in, right? So you said a lot of your academic work stems from your personal experiences. You, you shared with us very prominently that you were a, a, a child that was a, a product of Title IX at this perfect time that gave you some opportunities to play organized sport, whereas you wouldn't have if you were just a couple of years older. Does that factor in at all, sort of the, the gender differences? I mean, Title IX is very much set up uh, male and female and trying to, to um, help the underrepresented group to have similar opportunities. Do you see any of that play out in, in the research that you're doing? Uh, that's a great question, Chad. I get asked that a lot because um, at the University of Minnesota, we have something that I'm affiliated with called the Tucker Center for Research on Girls and Women in Sport. That was founded in the mid-1990s, and I've been there since the beginning really of that. I'm not the director of it, but I've been involved with their reports and projects and whatnot. And so the gender piece is something I get asked a lot. Um, my short answer is an athlete is an athlete is an athlete. In other words, what I see in the research is there's not, there are not dramatic differences between males and females in psychological responses to sports injuries. Um, Something I didn't mention in my own story, but it certainly was prevalent is playing through injury. I kept playing. Um, I think most of you are nodding your heads. You probably can relate. I think most of us can relate to that. No one stopped me. And I wish they would have in hindsight, although probably would have kept going anyway. You know, we're stubborn and we think we're invincible at that age. But women do the same things as men, to your question. And female young girls do the same things as young boys. They 
They want to um, not appear weak. They want to prove themselves to their coaches. They want to show toughness. And so they're just as willing as boys and girls, men and women are just as willing to push through pain and injury as each other. So I do not see dramatic differences. You know, some studies here and there will show some modest differences. Uh, perhaps one area might be women, female athletes might be a little more likely to admit or talk about what they're feeling. Not dramatically, though. They're pretty close, you know, guarded about that toughness thing as, as males, but a little bit more of that. But Males, you know, maybe might need a little more prompting to talk about what's bothering them or, you know, but I just really, there are not in the research dramatic differences and I haven't seen it either. I, again, I think I wrote a recent book chapter, it came out in 2021, actually just came out on um, personal and situational factors that influence psychological responses to injury. And I, I make the point, they initially asked me to write it about gender and I said, I, I can't, there's not enough. I said, it's one of many. So I see gender as one of many differences that affect how an athlete responds psychologically to injury. It's age, it's personality, it's pro injury history, it's family, you know, support or social structure, it's gender. So gender to me is just one of a, a constellation of personal and situational factors that affect how an athlete responds to injury. So my answer to how does an athlete respond to injury is it depends. <laughs> what time and season is it? Um, are they a new athlete versus an experienced athlete? Have they had an injury before? So long answer to your question, but I, gender to me is just one of many things, Chad, and I do not see strong and compelling gender differences in psychological responses to injury. So the psychology of injury is fascinating on both fronts. The sort of pre-injury moments that, that might lead you towards something. And then post-injury as you, how do you deal with injury? That's another aspect. And gender might be actually a smaller difference in there, smaller factor than most people assume. You have spent some time thinking about something, I don't know, you call or others call religiosity. Um, and I wonder if that you could help define that for us and maybe put it in the context of injury so that we can get an understanding of how that plays out as a factor. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I have to give kudos credit to if either or both of you were, were involved with the first Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. That's when I really started writing about this. I should say I actually wrote one paper for an athletic training journal. I was writing a column at the time, six times a year for Athletic Therapy Today, a human kinetics journal. And in 2000, I actually wrote a two-page column on um, spirit, mind, and body, I called it. And I was fascinated at the time, uh, again, this was 2000, but um, Koenig's work, Harold Koenig, I believe is his name, uh, had already published and written books, thousands of studies at the time supporting religiosity as beneficial to coping. And so I was making the point in this very short piece that I thought this could connect to responses to sport injury and in particular the work of the athletic trainers. Well, there in 2000, I wrote that, and then I didn't do anything about it until the second or the first Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. Uh, my um, former PhD advisee, Matt Ruiz, who's at Lipscomb University, invited me. Um, he said, hey, you know, Diane, we're, we're getting this Congress together, and I've been asked if we could pull together some sports psychology for the meeting. Would you be interested? Because Matt knew I was Christian. We had shared that, you know, that commonality in, in his student days, although... Of course, in a secular university, there's only so much talk you have about that. But 
I was delighted. And I said, Matthew, I'd love to sort of start thinking about writing about religiosity as one of, again, many coping strategies or ways of coping or benefits, what I thought would be beneficial coping approaches um, to sports injuries. So that's really when I started doing some research on it and uh, writing about it. And so I've written three, four, five maybe pieces by now on this particular topic. So so back to your point then, I've been thinking about it for a long time, but it's only the last few years I've been actually putting thoughts to action and some writings. And so religiosity is a very well, as I found out recently, I didn't know this, but as I started doing my reading, it's a very well-researched concept construct in psychology. And I, so I didn't invent anything. I simply took what's already there and applied those concepts or this construct to a sports injury situation, coping with sports injuries. And religiosity, um, there is no one set definition. You probably know this as well as I do, but in the psychology literature, which is my focus in particular, there's no one agreed to definition. And there are people struggle with making distinctions, if you will, between religiosity and spirituality. I think um, some studies, um, most religious people would also say they're spiritual, but not all people who say they're spiritual say they're religious, if that makes sense. And uh, so I, I learned, I'm, I'm learning this, I'm still learning about this. Um, and so I took those cons concepts and really focused on the area in the first couple of studies here on what I honed in on was religious commitment. In other words, a person's commitment to, as we talked about earlier, their religious slash spiritual, it's often called RS, religiosity, spirituality, underpinnings uh, of everything in their life and the extent to which they are committed to that as a foundation for their life. And I wanted to see how that related to athletes then use of religious coping strategies as a part of the way that they coped with sports injuries. And so I, I, I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but I'm, I'm trying to get at this idea of um, not just what is it, but how what I've found is, the as you might expect, it seems like common sense, but we had no data on this the more committed the athlete is to his or her religious faith, regardless of what the faith is, the more actively they use religious coping strategies, particularly positive religious coping strategies, which are much more prevalent than negative religious coping strategies. So I don't know, so, did I answer your question? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of directions I want to go in a follow-up, but I, I don't want to step in on Chad, but I wonder if you could just... Um, Tell us, just give us some concrete examples of those positive and negative coping strategies so that we can just understand it a bit more. And then uh, Chad can follow up with his next question. Sure. Um, so, for example, I, I, um, in one of our, in our first study that was published in the Journal of Clinical Sports Psychology in 2020, I believe it was, the most commonly used positive religious coping strategies were seeking spiritual support. So seeking comfort and reassurance through God's love and care. That was the most commonly used, most prevalent. Active religious surrender, benevolent religious reappraisal, which is redefining the stressor through religion as benevolent and potentially beneficial, which I can talk about in a minute if you want. That's very much related to a a non-religious construct that's common in, in my literature right now. Religious helping, providing help and support to others. These were the top five most used of, of about 20 different positive strategies. 
And then spiritual connection, experiencing a sense of connectedness with transcendent forces. So in that study, that, those were the most common positive religious coping strategies that we found athletes used in coping with. Their, we phrased it as their most serious or challenging sports-related injury. You know, this is just an audio file. And so for the listeners, they're not able to capture exactly what we just saw. But Diane, I just love it. Diane, Diane you, you had this right next to you. Like, you didn't have to search for that answer. Like, you are, this is right here. And I, I just love how, like, the the symbol that, you know, that, that the research you're doing is like imminently with you. It is, it is actually tangibly right, right there with you. You have, you have that list, which is wonderful. So we thank you for that. I wonder if you could follow up on, um, on the, was it benevolent reconstruction of the situation? Can you explain a little bit more about that? Um, so in, in this particular study, they scored highly, it was from a standardized inventory on something called benevolent religious reappraisal, reappraisal. which in, which in that inventory was, defined as redefining the stressor, in this case, the sport injury as the stressor, through religion as benevolent and potentially beneficial. And this is very similar to um, a hot topic in sport injury psychology right now is something called stress-related growth, which is sort of the silver lining idea that even though nobody really wants to be injured, typically, good things can come out of a bad situation. And, our, and we did, we had uh, qualitative aspects to our studies too. And so we would have athletes say things like, um, I would reappraise the injury as seeing it as God nudging me to reprioritize my life. In other words, sports had become too important in their life. And so they were trying, they were using the lesson, they saw it as a lesson um, and an opportunity instead of a challenge, if you will, an opportunity to reorient their priorities to the way they felt God would want them to be, not the world would want them to be. So that's, um, that's that idea of stress-related growth. There are many kinds of growth that can occur from stressful situations. But in sport injury, there is a growing body of literature on that topic in a secular sort of way. But to me, when I started reading this, I'm like, that's very similar. They're just saying their growth is spiritual growth, which we tend to ignore to a large extent in the secular writings. But, you know, as a person interested in this area, as a Christian, as someone who hears a lot of athletes, um, it was quite overwhelming how many do rely on their religious faith as one of one aspect of their coping. It's not the only aspect, but... I was um, very much encouraged by their maturity in seeing sport injury as an opportunity for spiritual growth, for example, rather than, you know, we did have a few athletes say, God is punishing me, why me, you know, as, as a spiritual discontent, if you will. Some athletes said that, and I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel that at times in my life, um, certainly with sports injuries. But I also, we, those same athletes would also say, but I fairly quickly moved through that so there was a temporal or chronology to this, but they fairly quickly worked through that and then started reappraising and seeing the opportunities and the positives that could come out um, of this opportunity to, again, reprioritize and reorganize their goals, if you will. You know, the parallel is, is really interesting that this phenomenon occurs in uh, athletes that consider themselves religious or Christian. And then uh, for those that don't, that same explanatory 
level or reprioritizing level shows up using somewhat different language. Uh, and it, it, to me, it's, it's uh, very interesting, too, that, that Christians are able to find their way to this place that uh, God has a plan for me. And that plan is acting out. And that plan is not all prosperity. Uh, there are moments in this plan where there's going to be moments of correction or redirection, and it may play out through my sport, right? It may play out through my priorities for through the things that I, uh, quote, love, right? So certain things that uh, students are, or student athletes, uh, athletes in general are processing through the lens of faith, um, which I think is leads me to my next question. How do we, uh, how would you, operationalize this for those closest to sport. And it, it may be you. I, I can imagine given your uh, area of research and your connections at a university, people knock on your doors and ask you very practical questions about their own injuries at times, and maybe people in your own life. But what do we say to coaches? What do we say to um, m- mentors? that might be helpful as they help students process through some of these injury situations? Well, in, uh, there are a few, several things that come to mind. So in several of my pieces, I write about interventions in psychology, they're often called psychological interventions. So to me, you're asking me a question in that wheelhouse of how do we use this information to intervene, meaning to do something to make things better for the athlete. And in this case, use this knowledge about their their um, religious ways of coping with sports-related injuries. And so I hope I'm going down the track you're interested in. A couple of things I think of, I, I listened to one of your blogs that was on um, patients, uh, forgot the, her name, but these, we need more literature on this. I'd love to talk to her because this these virtues or strengths, whatever you wanna call them, um, so what, how do we help these young athletes tapping into the, the virtues and strengths that they can continue to develop during this time? Like I, I hadn't thought of it. I haven't written about patients when I'm like, that's a perfect one for sports injuries. So how do you, as a coach or an athletic trainer, help an athlete learn and be at peace with having patience during a long rehabilitation recovery? That's a question I get a lot. And I, I think I'm going to start reading up on her topic of patience because I think that's a good lesson. And you never see that show up on a list of things I want to accomplish as an athlete, become more patient. That one's not on there. But I'm like, bingo, that that's a good one. And um, another article I just read was on gratitude tied to religious identification of athletes. It just came out like yesterday. It's a pre, I haven't read the whole article. It's just the abstract, but it was looking at back to this idea of religious commitment, that athletes who are more highly religiously committed had higher levels of what they called dispositional gratitude. In other words, in general, across most life circumstances, more gratitude. Gratitude is also in this um, area of positive psychology, it's called. That's, That's the secular sort of version of good things coming out of, you know, focusing on the good things. So my my, one of my answers to your question is, I think we need to do a better job as coaches, athletic trainers, professors, helping pull out those good things and reframe or whatever term you might like to use, helping athletes reframe the opportunities that a sports injury presents to build 
character, build virtue, in addition to, again, very practically, physical strength, coming back stronger than ever physically, but again, making the point you can come back stronger than ever spiritually as well, which is, again, this sort of forgotten aspect. And sort of related to that, something else I'd like to say is there was uh, Cynthia McKnight from Azusa Pacific. I don't know her, but I've quoted her work, had an interesting study, have it here too, Chad, but I printed out some things because there's so much here. It's just really exciting because there's a lot of people starting to write on this topic. And, and uh, so I found it fascinating, but she did an interesting study. She's, she works with athletic trainers. She's an athletic training program director. And so what she found, I was, the question, for example, do athletes want this? Brian, to your point, I'm like, well, do athletes want me to intervene in their spiritual well-being? That's kind of the question, especially for me sitting at a secular university. And I should add that my first college job, however, was at a Christian university. Um, you're, uh, I don't know if it's sort of a sister school, Chad, Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa, was so my first is. job. And I taught classes and I was the volleyball head volleyball and head softball coach. So at that institution, I was not only allowed to, I was expected to pray with athletes and engage in a spiritual way with athletes. However, obviously in a large secular university, that opportunity isn't there. So the question remains, in a faith-based versus a non-faith-based institution, for example, if you're working with collegiate athletes, do they even want you to intervene? Well, back to Cynthia McKnight's work, her study that just came out in 2019, short answer is yes, they do, both the secular and the non-secular. She had both um, secular institutions and religious institutions. And obviously the religious institutions were a bit higher in seeing it as part of the athletic trainer's job to recognize and at least accommodate their spiritual positionality as an athlete. But even the non, those from non-religious institutions, they may have been religious themselves, but the institution was not, also had pretty high percentages of agreement. So if I could read you a couple, um, again, these are student athletes at colleges had a a very high set of agreement with um, the idea that an injured athlete's spiritual perspective may affect her, his or her treatment progress. They also had a, a very high percentage in agreement with the statement addressing the spiritual concerns of an athlete could result in a more positive outcome when treating an athletic injury. And another example, high level of agreement from the athlete's that certified athletic trainers should have some basic skills and knowledge necessary to support the spiritual needs of the injured athlete. And there's a lot more in that study, but the point is, um, was Brian, before I get to what can I do, it's like, should I, do they want me to? And the answer seems to be yes. And therefore, what do I do? And so again, it depends on the type of institution, but you know, there are some obvious ones. There's some great articles on prayer and sport, and if that's appropriate. Um, some of the McKnight findings also support that in a religious institution, praying with athletes, sharing your personal faith story. Um, I use a modeling example um, using Bethany Hamilton's Soul Surfer or other books where athletes talk about how important their faith was in their recovery from sports-related injuries. Eric Legrand, I believe, is another one. Kevin Everett. I can think of books that I um, have read where the, their stories resonate, I think, with athletes, seeing how 
high profile athletes or high profile stories have used their religious faith. So pointing them to those kinds of um, stories or modeling effects, if you will. I also, even in my 2000 article wrote referral. So in psychology, we talk a lot about referrals to mental health professionals. I'm like, well, why would we not refer to spiritual professionals? Even at a secular institution, I don't really see any downside of having a, a, a printout or a list of available um, religious of all faiths, the resources or networks that athletes, they're new in college, new, you know, new at town, they don't know spiritual connection, you know, connections or advisors or rabbis or priests or pastors. Why would we not have that as a referral possibility? So those are some ideas, Brian, I think I'm hope I'm getting at kind of what you're asking. Those are some of the intervention ideas that I've come up with that I think are doable for the kinds of populations that I deal with, which again would be sport coaches, athletic trainers. Um, that's kind of the wheelhouse I'm in, sport psychology consultants. I think um, the other one, I would just add one more is, uh, I read about something called the FICA. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a, it's part of a a medical provider would use it as part of their interview with an injured athlete. And it asks about the importance, essentially about the importance and centrality of faith in the athlete's life and what, what they would expect of their healthcare provider with respect to accommodating that religious belief. And it's such a sort of simple thing, but they have this, you know, beautiful checklist. It wasn't written for sports. It wasn't written, you know, for the kinds of environments we're in, but it it's a simple kind of, um, acronym that makes sense for us to use. So long answer, but those are some of the ideas that I have about how we can use this information in a practical way. Diane, one of the um, one of the groups of listeners to this podcast is sports chaplains. And so as we talk about the ways in which people who are close to the athlete, specifically an injured athlete, can respond to the work that you're doing, um, it, it, you know, I think about, for instance, athletic trainers, I've always thought wear so many hats when it comes to working with athletes, right? Athletes see them as sort of someone who can help fix, not just physically what's wrong with them, but, you know, they, they share their stories with, they open up, they make themselves vulnerable to, to that to that type of, uh, of, of worker, really. And I found that to be similar for a sports chaplain, that a lot of times athletes are looking to the chaplain for any number of different things. One of, part of what Brian and I are trying to do and what the Congresses have tried to do is to pull together chaplains, those who are working with athletes, chaplains, coaches, administrators, whatever else, and people who are doing academic work like yourself. And so I'm wondering if, if you can make, you know, a, a statement to the sports chaplains who would be listening today to say, hey, here's here's what you can get from the literature that 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 you've done specifically, but also the other people that you're citing here, the people that you're working closely with. How can we how can we help uh, sports chaplains better do their work? I think that's a really important question, Chad. And one of the other uh podcast that I listened to yesterday and sort of preparation for what you, where you might take me today was Will Whitmore's. Um, I think it was your most recent one. And uh, what, one of the things that really resonated with me there is he was sort of like be present sort of all the time, not just in the bad times. That's my version of what he said, but uh, you know, for chaplains, that's what he said. And I, again, I, before I go back to chaplains, I feel athletic trainers are just, as you just said, that person. And that's one of the reasons why they're in a, a perfect sort of position. They see the athletes on a preventive side as well as a post-injury side. Again, at least in a collegiate setting, not so much high school. Unfortunately, they don't have that access. On the sports chaplains, I have started reading that literature over the past three years or so. 
and I'm fascinated by it because, again, I, I am thinking about how does that relate? I don't have a lot of experience. Um, I'm not aware that whether or not we have any sports chaplains affiliated with the University of Minnesota teams. We didn't when I was a coach in, in Iowa. We did not have that. So I don't have experience with it, but I've talked to them. at I was at your second Global Congress as well, and hopefully can get to the third. We'll, we're all hoping for that, right? Sounds exciting. Um, but the chaplain, so they, these athletes that we interviewed or have respond to our survey, I should say it that way, um, absolutely want, and Cynthia McKnight's work supports, they want what you have to offer. And you're absolutely right, Chad, that I would never say an athletic trainer has a lot of time for this. They don't. So if they had a referral to a chaplain, you know, back to that, that would be an ideal situation. Then the chaplain, again, I'm sure could help the student athlete get to resources of whatever religious faith they are, which again, um, I, I should mention too, one of our more recent studies looked at um, whether de Christian denomination affected the use of positive or negative coping strategies, we thought, well, maybe it's sort of the more mainline, traditional, you know, Catholic, Lutheran, whatever, would be different from a non-denominational, evangelical, sort of more. And so we actually looked at that, and the short answer is no. It's not denomination. It's religious commitment that overrode any sort of denominational differences. And so this is where a, a chaplain, to your point, regardless of their denominational traditions, so to speak, um, it's about religious commitment for these athletes. So they want you. One thing I would point out that we haven't talked about for chaplains, I saw in the literature, is on the pre-injury side. So there's a whole psychology, Brian alluded to it earlier, on the prevention side. And one thing we know is a very powerful finding in our literature in general is that stress, high perceived stress is a risk factor for sports injury. It's not the direct cause, but it creates a climate in which injuries are more likely to happen. So an athlete under high stress, particularly if they have low coping resources to help them handle that stress, which is where a chaplain can come in pre-injury, I would argue anything they can do to help with stress reduction and peacefulness, kind of like what we were talking about, and calm and reductions in anxiety would be a preventative strategy. So an area where uh, chaplains could intervene on the prevention side, which, which is where we'd all love to be, <laughs> prevent the injuries before they happen. And I saw two or three studies with um, athletes and sports chaplains where the athletes would talk about the importance of their, I think it's Matt Hoban's work and someone else's on um, uh, rituals and superstitions. Sometimes they're called in sport, but he makes a really important distinction between ritual and superstition. So helping athletes establish, a chaplain could help an athlete just establish a pre-meet, pre-match, pre-competition uh, ritual, religious ritual that helps calm them, get them in the right place in their head and their heart for the upcoming competition to go in with a mindset of sportsmanship is another thing that comes to mind. Um, we know that illegal play and unsportsmanlike play carries a much higher risk of injury. And so again, I think a chaplain, I would push really help on the pre-injury side as well. Don't forget about that. Things that they might not they might do as chaplains already, but they don't connect it to the very important injury prevention um, influence that it has on athletes, again, based on the studies that I've seen. So athletes often, I saw a study of South African soccer players, I believe it was, where they would, 58% um, of the athletes or something like that said that they use pre-injury prayer and, and uh, spiritual preparation as a prevention strategy. They pray for protection 
uh, from injuries. And so, again, that would just be a, a sort of a different piece that chaplains could hone in on. Well, Diane, I think in just this short conversation, um, we have learned that we're just barely scratching the surface in this particular area. And uh, it's been so uh, gratifying, truthfully, to hear you talk about these natural networks that have now developed these um, connections. And you you have people that you've connected it with through the Global Congress and then people that you haven't even met, but you've, you're reading their work and your grasp of the literature just uh, shows how those networks work on varying levels, right? They're social and they're person, interpersonal and connected, but also just the, um, the knowledge uh, that we gain by reading each other's work and continuing to get to ask new questions about these things. And that's just really gratifying to Chad and, and myself, just because we're, we're trying to do those things. We're trying to pull together these groups because there's just so many um, uh, good pieces of information and good new directions for us to go and to encourage our student athletes in whatever setting, uh, athletes at the professional level, right down to youth. Uh, and I, we didn't even get to that. And I know that you spend time in in youth as well. So uh, I just wanted to thank you for coming on with us. Uh, this has been wonderful. Um, and we can't wait to talk to you again next time. Well, thank you both for the opportunity. And, and thank you so much for these global congresses and your roles in those, because without those, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now. It would have stayed with one paper long ago that I never got back to. And as I you know, look toward sort of the ending of my career, I'm nearing that point. I've really thought hard about what do I want to spend my last you know, few years on? And this is one of them that I really have a heart for. So I would not that would not have happened without the opportunities that your work and so many others that haven't been involved in the global congresses has provided. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.